0: Part Three of *The Lady of the Shroud* by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part Three. And now, my dear nephew, let me change to another subject more dear to me—yourself. When you read this, I shall have passed away, so that I need not be hampered now by that reserve which I feel has grown upon me through a long and self-contained life. Your mother was very dear to me. As you know, she was twenty years younger than her youngest brother, who was two years younger than me. So we were all young men when she was a baby, and I need not say, a pet amongst us. Almost like our own child to each of us, as well as our sister. You knew her sweetness and high quality, so I need say nothing of these. But I should like you to understand that she was very dear to me. When she and your father came to know and love each other, I was far away, opening up a new branch of business in the interior of China, and it was not for several months that I got home news. When I first heard of him, they had already been married. I was delighted to find that they were very happy. They needed nothing that I could give. When he died so suddenly, I tried to comfort her, and all I had was at her disposal that she wanted. She was a proud woman though not with me she had come to understand that though i seemed cold and hard and perhaps was so generally i was not so to her but she would not have help of any kind when i pressed her she told me that she had enough for your keep and education and her own sustenance for the time she must still live that your father and she had agreed that you should be brought up to a healthy and strenuous life rather than to one of luxury And she thought that it would be better for the development of your character that you should learn to be self-reliant and to be content with what your dear father had left you she had always been a wise and thoughtful girl and now all her wisdom and thought were for you your father's and her child when she spoke of you and your future she said many things which i thought memorable one of them i remember to this day it was apropos of my saying That there is a danger of its own kind in extreme poverty a young man might know too much want she answered me true that is so but there is a danger that overrides it and after a time went on it is better not to know wants than not to know want i tell you boy that is a great truth and i hope you will remember it for yourself as well as a part of the wisdom of your mother And here let me say something else, which is a sort of corollary of that wise utterance. I dare say you thought me very hard and unsympathetic that time I would not, as one of your trustees, agree to your transferring your little fortune to Miss McKelpie. I dare say you bear a grudge towards me about it up to this day. Well, if you have any of that remaining, put it aside when you know the truth." that request of yours was an unspeakable delight to me it was like your mother coming back from the dead that little letter of yours made me wish for the first time that i had a son and that he should be like you i fell into a sort of reverie thinking if i were yet too old to marry so that a son might be with me in my declining years if such were to ever be for me But I concluded that this might not be. There was no woman whom I knew or had ever met with that I could love as your mother loved your father, and as he loved her. So I resigned myself to my fate. I must go my lonely road on to the end. And then came a ray of light into my darkness. There was you, though you might not feel like a son to me. I could not expect it when the memory of that sweet relationship was more worthily filled, but I could feel like a father to you. Nothing could prevent that or interfere with it, for I would keep it as my secret in the very holy of holies of my heart, where it had been for thirty years the image of a sweet little child, your mother. My boy, when in your future life you shall have happiness and honor and power, I hope you will sometimes give a thought, to the lonely old man whose later years your very existence seemed to brighten. The thought of your mother recalled me to my duty. I had undertaken for her a sacred task, to carry out her wishes regarding her son. I knew how she would have acted. It might, would, have been to her a struggle of inclination and duty, and duty would have won. And so I carried out my duty. Though i tell you it was a harsh and bitter task to me at the time but i may tell you that i have since been glad when i think of the result i tried as you may perhaps remember to carry out your wishes in another way but your letter put the difficulty of doing so so clearly before me that i had to give it up and let me tell you that that letter endeared you to me more than ever i need not tell you that thenceforth i followed your life very closely when you ran away to sea i used in secret every part of the mechanism of commerce to find out what had become of you then until you had reached your majority i had a constant watch kept upon you not to interfere with you in any way but so that i might be able to find you should need arise when in due course i heard of your first act on coming of age i was satisfied i had to know of the carrying out of your original intention towards Janet McKelpie for the securities had to be transferred. From that time on, I watched, of course through other eyes, your chief doings. It would have been a pleasure to me to have been able to help in carrying out any hope or ambition of yours, but I realized that in the years intervening between your coming of age and the present moment, you were fulfilling your ideas and ambitions in your own way, and, as I shall try to explain to you presently, my ambitions also you were of so adventurous a nature that even my own widely spread machinery of acquiring information what i may call my private intelligence department was inadequate my machinery was fairly adequate for the east in great part at all events, but you went north and south and west also and in addition you essayed realms where commerce and purely real affairs have no foothold worlds of thought of spiritual import of psychic phenomena speaking generally of mysteries as now and again i was baffled in my inquiries i had to enlarge my mechanism and to this end started not in my own name of course some new magazines devoted to certain branches of inquiry and adventure should you ever care to know more of these things mr trent in whose name the stock is left will be delighted to give you all details indeed these stocks, like all else I have, shall be yours when the time comes, if you care to ask for them. Me. By means of the Journal of Adventure, the Magazine of Mystery, Occultism, Balloon and Aeroplane, the Submarine, Jungle and Pampas, the Ghost World, the Explorer, Forest and Island, Ocean and Creek, I was often kept informed when I should otherwise have been ignorant of your whereabouts and designs. For instance, When you had disappeared into the forest of the Incas, I got the first whisper of your strange adventures and discoveries in the buried cities of Yudori from a correspondent of the Journal of Adventure, long before the details given in the times of the rock-temple of the primeval savages where only remained the little dragon-serpents whose giant ancestors were rudely sculptured on the sacrificial altar. I well remember how I thrilled at even that meager account of your going in alone, into that veritable hell it was from occultism that i learned how you had made a stay alone in the haunted catacombs of Elora, in the far recesses of the himalayas and of the fearful experiences which when you came out shuddering and ghastly overcame to almost epileptic fear those who had banded themselves together to go as far as the rock-cut approach to the hidden temple all such things i read with rejoicing you were shaping yourself for a wider and loftier adventure which would crown more worthily your matured manhood when i read of you in a description of mihask in madagascar and the devil worship there rarely held i felt i had only to wait for your homecoming in order to broach the enterprise i had so long contemplated this is what i read he is a man to whom no adventure is too wild or too daring his reckless bravery is a byword amongst many savage peoples, and amongst many others, not savages, whose fears are not of material things, but of the world of mysteries in and beyond the grave. He dares not only wild animals and savage men, but has tackled African magic and Indian mysticism. The Psychical Research Society has long exploited his deeds of valiance, and looked upon him as perhaps their most trusted agent or source of discovery. He is in the very prime of life, of almost giant stature and strength, trained to the use of all arms and of all countries, inured to every kind of hardship, subtle-minded and resourceful, understanding human nature from its elemental form up. To say that he is fearless would be inadequate. In a word, he is a man whose strength and daring fit him for any enterprise of any kind. He would dare and do anything in the world, or out of it on the earth or under it, in the sea or in the air, fearing nothing material or unseen, not man or ghost nor God nor devil. If you ever care to think of it, I carried that cutting in my pocketbook from that hour I read it till now. Remember again, I say, that I never interfered in the slightest way in any of your adventures. I wanted you to dree your own weird, as the Scotch say, and I wanted to know of it, that was all now as i hold you fully equipped for greater enterprise i want to set your feet on the road and to provide you with the most potent weapon beyond personal qualities for the winning of great honour again my dear nephew which i am right sure does and will appeal to you as it has ever done to me i have worked for it for more than fifty years but now that the time has come when the torch is slipping from my old hands I look to you, my dearest kinsman, to lift it and carry it on. The little nation of the Blue Mountains has from the first appealed to me. It is poor and proud and brave. Its people are well worth winning, and I would advise you to throw in your lot with them. You may find them hard to win, for when peoples, like individuals, are poor and proud, these qualities are apt to react on each other to an endless degree. These men are untamable, and no one can ever succeed with them unless he is with them in all in all, and is a leader recognized. But if you can win them, they are loyal to death. If you are ambitious, and I know you are, there may be a field for you in such a country. With your qualifications, fortified by the fortune which I am happy enough to be able to leave you, you may dare much and go far. Should I be alive when you return from your exploration in northern South America, I may have the happiness of helping you to this or any other ambition, and I shall deem it a privilege to share it with you. But time is going on. I am in my seventy-second year. The years of man are three-score and ten. I suppose you understand. I do. Let me point out this. For ambitious projects, the great nationalities are impossible to a stranger, and in our own we are limited by loyalty and common sense. It is only in a small nation that great ambitions can be achieved. If you share my own views and wishes, the Blue Mountains is your ground. I hoped at one time that I might yet become a voivode, even a great one. But age has dulled my personal ambitions as it has cramped my powers. I no longer dream of such honour for myself, though I do look on it as a possibility for you, if you care for it. Through my will, you will have a great position and a great estate, and though you may have to yield up the latter in accordance with my wish, as already expressed in this letter, the very doing so will give you an even greater hold than this possession in the hearts of the mountaineers, should they ever come to know it. Should it be that At the time you inherit from me the voivode Vissarion should not be alive, it may serve or aid you to know that in such case you would be absolved from any conditions of mine, though I trust you would, in that, as in all other matters, hold obligation enforced by your own honour as to my wishes. Therefore the matter stands thus. If Vissarion lives, you will relinquish the estates, should such not be the case. You will act as you believe that I would wish you to. In either case, the mountaineers should not know from you, in any way, of the secret contracts between Vissarion and myself. Enlightenment of the many should, if ever, come from others than yourself. And unless such take place, you would leave the estates without any prid, quo, whatever. This you need not mind, for the fortune you will inherit will leave you free and able to purchase other estates in the blue mountains, or elsewhere that you may select in the world. If others attack, attack them, and quicker and harder than they can, if such be a possibility. Should it ever be that you inherit the castle of Bessarion on the Spear of Ivan, remember that I had it secretly fortified and armed against attack. There are not only massive grills, but doors of chilled bronze where such be needed. My adherent rogue who has faithfully served me for nearly forty years and has gone on my behalf on many perilous expeditions will, I trust, serve you in the same way. Treat him well for my sake, if not for your own. I have left him provision for a life of ease, but he would rather take a part in dangerous enterprises. He is silent as the grave and as bold as a lion. He knows every detail of the fortification and of the secret means of defence. A word in your ear He was once a pirate. He was then in his extreme youth, and long since changed his ways in this respect. But from this fact you can understand his nature. You will find him useful should occasion ever arise. Should you accept the conditions of my letter, you are to make the Blue Mountains, in part at least, your home, living there a part of the year, if only for a week, as in England men of many estates share the time amongst them. To this you are not bound, and no one shall have power to compel you or interfere with you. I only express a hope. But one thing I do more than hope, I desire, if you will honour my wishes, that, come what may, you are to keep your British nationality, unless by special arrangement with and consent of the Privy Council. Such arrangement to be formally made by my friend Edward Bingham Trent, or whomsoever he may appoint by deed or will to act in the matter, and made in such a way that no act save that alone of Parliament, in all its estates, and endorsed by the king, may or can prevail against it. My last word to you is, be bold and honest, and fear not. Most things, even kingship, somewhere, may now and again be won by the sword. A brave heart and a strong arm may go far. But whatever is so won cannot be held merely by the sword. Justice alone can hold in the long run. Where men trust, they will follow, and the rank and file of people want to follow, not to lead. If it be your fortune to lead, be bold, be wary if you will. Exercise any other faculties that may aid or guard. Shrink from nothing, avoid nothing that is honourable in itself. Take responsibility when such presents itself. What others shrink from, accept. That is to be great in what world, little or big, you move. Fear nothing, no matter of what kind danger may be or whence it come. The only real way to meet danger is to despise it, except with your brains. Meet it in the gate, not the hall. My kinsman, the name of my race and your own, worthily mingled in your own person, now rests with you. Letter from Rupert St. Ledger, 32 Bodman Street, Victoria, S.W., to Miss Janet McKelpie, Croom, Rosshire. January 3rd, 1907 My dearest Aunt Janet, You will, I know, be rejoiced to hear of the great good fortune which has come to me through the will of Uncle Roger. Perhaps Sir Colin will have written to you, as he is one of the executors, and there is a bequest to you so I must not spoil his pleasure of telling you of that part himself. Unfortunately, I am not free to speak fully of my own legacy yet, but I want you to know that, at worst, I am to receive an amount many times more than I ever dreamt of possessing through any possible stroke of fortune. So as soon as I can leave London, where, of course, I must remain until things are settled, I am coming up to Croome to see you and I hope I shall by then be able to let you know so much that you will be able to guess at the extraordinary change that has come to my circumstances. It is all like an impossible dream. There is nothing like it in the Arabian Nights. However, the details must wait. I am pledged to secrecy for the present, and you must be pledged too. You won't mind, dear, will you? What I want to do at present is merely to tell you of my own good fortune, and that I shall be going presently to live for a while at Vissaria. Won't you come with me, Aunt Janet? We shall talk more of this when I come to Croon, but I want you to keep the subject in your mind. Your Loving Rupert From Rupert St. Ledger's Journal January fourth, nineteen 1907 Things have been humming about me so fast that I have had hardly time to think. But some of the things have been so important and have so changed my entire outlook on life that it may be well to keep some personal record of them. I may some day want to remember some detail, perhaps the sequence of events or something like that, and it may be useful. It ought to be, if there is any justice in things, for it would be an awful swat to write it when I have so many things to think of now. "'Aunt Janet, I suppose, will like to keep it locked up for me, "'as she does with all my journals and papers. "'That is one good thing about Aunt Janet amongst many. "'She has no curiosity, or else she has some other quality "'which keeps her from prying, as other women would. "'It would seem that she has not so much as opened the cover "'of one of my journals ever in her life, "'and she would not without my permission. "'So this can in time go to her also. "'I dined last night with Mr. Trent by his special desire.' The dinner was in his own rooms. Dinner sent in from the hotel. He would not have any waiters at all, but made them send in the dinner all at once, and we helped ourselves. As we were quite alone, we could talk freely, and we got over a lot of ground while we were dining. He began to tell me about Uncle Roger. I was glad of that, for of course I wanted to know all I could of him, and the fact was that I had seen very little of him. Of course, when I was a small kid he was often at our house. "'for he was very fond of Mother, and she of him. "'But I fancy that a small boy was rather a nuisance to him. "'And then I was at school, and he was away in the east. "'And then poor Mother died while he was living in the Blue Mountains, "'and I never saw him again. "'When I wrote to him about Aunt Janet, he answered me very kindly, "'but he was so very just in the matter that I got afraid of him. "'And after that I ran away, and have been roaming ever since. "'So there was never a chance of our meeting.' But that letter of his has opened my eyes. To think of him following me that way, all over the world, waiting to hold out a helping hand if I should want it. I only wish I had known, or even suspected, the sort of man he was, and how he cared for me. And I would sometimes have come back to see him, if I had to come half round the world. Well, all I can do now is to carry out his wishes. That will be my expiation for my neglect. He knew what he wanted exactly and i suppose i shall come in time to know it all and understand it too i was thinking something like this when mr trent began to talk so that all he said fitted exactly into my own thought the two men were evidently great friends i should have gathered that anyhow from the will and the letters so i was not surprised when mr trent told me that they had been to school together uncle roger being a senior when he was a junior and had then, and ever after, shared each other's confidence. Mr. Trent, I gathered, had from the very first been in love with my mother, even when she was a little girl. But he was poor and shy, and did not like to speak. When he had made up his mind to do so, he found that she had by then met my father, and could not help seeing that they loved each other. So he was silent. He told me he had never said a word about it to anyone, not even to my Uncle Roger, though he knew from one thing and another, though he never spoke of it, that he would like it. I could not help seeing that the dear old man regarded me in a sort of parental way. I have heard of such romantic attachments being transferred to the later generation. I was not displeased with it. On the contrary, I liked him better for it. I love my mother so much, I always think of her in the present, that I cannot think of her as dead. There is a tie between anyone else who loved her and myself. I tried to let mr trent see that i liked him and it pleased him so much that i could see his liking for me grew greater before we parted he told me that he was going to give up business he must have understood how disappointed i was for how could i ever get along at all without him for he said as he laid a hand quite affectionately i thought on my shoulder i shall have one client though whose business i always hope to keep and for whom i shall be always whilst i live glad to act if he will have me i did not care to speak as i took his hand he squeezed mine too and said very earnestly i served your uncle's interests to the very best of my ability for nearly fifty years he had full confidence in me and i was proud of his trust i can honestly say rupert you won't mind me using that familiarity will you that though the interests which i guarded were so vast that without abusing my trust i could often have used my knowledge to my personal advantage i never once in little matters or big abused that trust no not even rubbed the bloom off it and now that he has remembered me in his will so generously that i need work no more it will be a very genuine pleasure and pride to me to carry out as well as i can the wishes that i partly knew and now realise more fully towards you his nephew in the long chat which we had and which lasted till midnight he told me many very interesting things about uncle roger when in the course of conversation he mentioned that the fortune uncle roger left must be well over a hundred millions i was so surprised that i said out loud i did not mean to ask a question how on earth could a man beginning with nothing realize such a gigantic fortune by all honest ways, he answered, and his clever human insight, he knew one half of the world, and so kept abreast of all public and national movements that he knew the critical moment to advance money required. He was always generous, and always on the side of freedom. There are nations at this moment, only now entering on the consolidation of the liberty, who owe all to him, who knew when and how to help. No wonder that in some lands they will drink to his memory on great occasions, as they used to drink his health. As you and I shall do now, sir, I said, as I filled my glass and stood up. We drank it in bumpers. We did not say a word, either of us, but the old gentleman held out his hand and I took it. And so, holding hands, we drank in silence. It made me feel quite choky, and I could see that he too was moved. From E.B. Trent's Memoranda January 4th, 1907 I asked Mr. Rupert St. Leger to dine with me at my office alone, as I wished to have a chat with him. To-morrow Sir Colin and I will have a formal meeting with him for the settlement of affairs, but I thought it best to have an informal talk with him alone first, as I wished to tell him certain matters which will make our meeting to-morrow more productive of utility as he can now have more full understanding of the subjects which we have to discuss. Sir Colin is all that can be in manhood, and I could wish no better colleague in the executorship of this phenomenal will. But he has not had the privilege of a lifelong friendship with a testator as I have had. And as Rupert St. Ledger had to learn intimate details regarding his uncle, I could best make my confidences alone. Tomorrow we shall have plenty of formality. I was delighted with Rupert. He is just what I could have wished his mother's boy to be, or a son of my own to be, had I had the good fortune to have been a father. But this is not for me. I remember long, long ago reading a passage in Lamb's Essays, which hangs in my mind. The children of Alice, called Bartram father. Some of my old friends would laugh to see me write this, but these memoranda are from my eyes alone. And no one shall see them till after my death, unless by my own permission. The boy takes some qualities after his father. He has a daring that is disturbing to an old dry-as-dust lawyer like me. But somehow I like him more than I ever liked anyone, any man, in my life. More even than his uncle, my old friend Roger Melton. And Lord knows I had much cause to like him. I have more than ever now it was quite delightful to see the way the young adventurer was touched by his uncles thought of him he is a truly gallant fellow but venturesome exploits have not affected the goodness of heart it is a pleasure to me to think that roger and colin came together apropos of the boy's thoughtful generosity towards miss mckelby the old soldier will be a good friend to him or i am much mistaken with an old lawyer like me and an old soldier like him and a real old gentlewoman like Miss McKelpie, who loves the very ground he walks on, to look after him, together with all his own fine qualities and his marvelous experience of the world, and the gigantic wealth that will surely be his, that young man will go far. Letter from Rupertson Ledger to Miss Janet McKelpie, Croom. January 5th, 1907. My dearest Aunt Janet, it is all over, the first stage of it, and that is as far as I can get at present. I shall have to wait for a few days, or it may be weeks, in London, for the doing of certain things now necessitated by my acceptance of Uncle Roger's bequest. But as soon as I can, dear, I shall come down to Croom and spend with you as many days as possible. I shall then tell you all I am at liberty to tell, and I shall thank you personally for your consent to come with me to Visarium. Oh, how I wish my dear mother had lived to be with us! It would have made her happy, I know, to have come. And then we three who shared together the old dear hard days would have shared in the same way the new splendor. I would try to show all my love and gratitude to you both. You must take the whole burden of it now, dear, for you and I are alone. No, not alone, as it used to be, for I have now two old friends who are already dear to me. One is so to you already. Sir Colin is simply splendid. And so, in his own way, is Mr. Trent. I am lucky, Aunt Janet, to have two such men to think of affairs for me. Am I not? I shall send you a wire as soon as ever I can see my way to get through my work. And I want you to think over all the things you ever wished for in your life, so that I may, if there is any mortal way of doing so, get them for you. You will not stand in the way of my having this great pleasure, will you, dear? Goodbye, your loving Rupert. E.B. Trent's Memoranda, January 6th, 1907 The formal meeting of Sir Colin and myself with Rupert St. Ledger went off quite satisfactorily. From what he had said yesterday and again last night, I had almost come to expect an unreserved acceptance of everything stated or implied in Roger Melton's will. But when we had sat round the table, and this appeared, by the way, to be a formality for which we were all prepared, for we sat down as if by instinct, the very first words he said were as i suppose i must go through this formality i may as well say at once that i accept every possible condition which was in the mind of uncle roger and to this end i am prepared to sign seal and deliver or whatever is the ritual whatever document you sir turning to me may think necessary or advisable and of which you both approve he stood up and walked about the room for a few moments Sir Colin and I sitting quite still, silent. He came back to his seat, and after a few seconds of nervousness, a rare thing with him, I fancy, said, I hope you both understand. Of course, I know you do. I only speak because this is an occasion for formality. That I am willing to accept, and at once. I do so, believe me, not to get possession of this vast fortune, but because of him who has given it. The man who was fond of me, and who trusted me, and yet had strength to keep his own feelings in check, who followed me, in spirit, to far lands and desperate adventures, and who, though he might be across the world from me, was ready to put out a hand to save or help me, he was no common man, and his care of my mother's son meant no common love for my dear mother. And so she and I together accept his trust, come of it what may. I have been thinking it over all night, and all the time I could not get out of the idea that Mother was somewhere near me. The only thought that could debar me from doing as I wished to do, and intend to, to do, would be that she would not approve. Now that I am satisfied she would approve, I accept. Whatever may result or happen, I shall go on following the course that he has set for me. So help me God. Sir Colin stood up. And I must say, a more martial figure I never saw. He was in full uniform, for he was going on to the King's levy after our business. He drew his sword from the scabbard and laid it naked on the table before Rupert and said, You are going, sir, into a strange and danger country. I have been reading about it since we met. And you will be largely alone amongst fierce mountaineers who resent the very presence of a stranger and to whom you are and must be one if you should ever be in any trouble and want a man to stand back to back with you i hope you will give me the honour as he said this pointed to his sword rupert and i were also standing now one cannot sit down in the presence of such an act as that you are i am proud to say allied with my family and i only wish to god it was closer to myself rupert took him by the hand and bent his head before him, as answered the honour is mine, Sir so Colin, and no greater can come to any man than that which you have just done me. The best way I can show how I value it will be to call on you if I am ever in such a tight place. By Jove, sir, this is history repeating itself, and Janet used to tell me when I was a youngster how Mckelelpie of Croom laid his sword before Prince Charlie. I hope I may tell her of this. It would make her so proud and happy. Don't imagine, sir, that I am thinking myself a Charles Edward. It is only that Aunt Janet is so good to me that I might well think I was. Sir Colin bowed grandly. Rupert said Ledger, my dear niece is a woman of great discretion and discernment, and moreover I am thinking she has in her some of the gift of second sight that has been a heritage of our blood. And I am one with my niece in everything the whole thing was quite legal in manner it seemed to take me back to the days of the pretender it was not however a time for sentiment but for action we had met regarding the future not the past so i produced the short document i had already prepared on the strength of his steadfast declaration that he would accept the terms of the will and the secret letters i had got ready a formal acceptance when i had once again formally asked mr st ledger's wishes and he had declared his wish to accept I got in a couple of my clerks as witnesses. Then, having again asked him in their presence if it was his wish to declare acceptance of the conditions, the document was signed and witnessed, Sir Colin and I both appending our signatures to the attestation. And so the first stage of Rupert St. Ledger's inheritance is completed. The next step will not have to be undertaken on my part until the expiration of six months from his entry on his estate at Vissarion. As he announces his intention of going within a fortnight, this will mean practically a little over six months from now. End of Part 3. Recording by Thomas Copeland.